Hello and welcome to the Limerick Post Podcasts. We are Limerick. I'm your host, Keen Reinhardt. Join me each week as we get to know the people of Limerick who are making the city and county what it is today. You can keep up to date with all Limerick news, sport and entertainment by following the hashtag Keeping Limerick Posted across all our social media channels or visiting limerickpost.ie. This week we're joined by Limerick playwright Mike Finn. His show Bread Not Profits is currently running in Cleves Factory, celebrating the 100 year anniversary of the historical event, the Limerick Soviet. Mike, thanks for joining us. How You're welcome. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. How is everything going? It's going really well, yeah. yeah. I'm really pleased with it. In fact, it's, uh, it's kind of uh, been realised beyond my wildest dreams. You know, it was always a challenge deciding to do it in the Cleves Factory because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a theatre. So we had to essentially make, we're in, we're in four different. Uh, spaces there so we were essentially having to create four different theatres almost to put in four different lighting rigs sound rigs lighting desks all that kind of stuff so it has been a challenge create dressing rooms green rooms all that kind of stuff a foyer area a place for the for the audience to go uh, before the play even starts so it's been a little bonkers but it's uh, it's working out really well and how have the rehearsals been going because as you said it is site specific so with this weather as well it's probably yeah it's been i mean it's been a challenge because it's been cold down there uh, and it is and will remain cold even if the weather gets better. <laughs> so I would, uh, you know, sort of advise people. Although you know, ninety nine percent of what we're doing is indoors. Mm. Uh, it's best for the, for an audience to assume it's outdoors or to behave like they're. It is going. such an old building. It's like. an old building. It's cold, and you know, you can't eat it. Uh, and so we were never going to. So you have to assume that you're like going to uh, Tommen Park to see Bruce Springsteen or something. Dress accordingly. Um, uh, but, uh, but apparently the weather's going to improve. I hear that as much as well. But uh, the cast have been great. But it's obviously hard to be hanging around for hours on end in a in a in a cold um, uh, factory. But I think that our costume uh, designer uh, bought up every piece of thermal underwear that, that was in pennies and duns for the last few weeks. So they're well wrapped up and uh, and we, we have a microwave and we have a kettle. So they're constantly topping up with soup. And uh, so, so when you started writing this play, did, yeah. did you always envision it being in Cleves? Um, I'm trying to remember. It's been so long because uh, I've been working on it on and off for about four years. I think that it was a pretty early decision for sure when I started researching it. I was theatre artist in residence at the Bell Table during 2017. And uh, I think from early on, I had this idea that maybe it would be good to do it over there because it's the last remaining. We're just lucky it happens to be the last remaining factory from that period still standing in the city. All the others are gone. The clothing factory, the bacon factories and so on have all been um, you know, knocked down or changed absolutely radically. Uh, whereas the Cleese factory is still there. And also it was one of the pivotal um, uh, places during the original mix Soviet, the workers there were really quite radicalized. They were mostly members of the ITGW. They were actually the first people to go on strike. They went on strike, um, even I think, or they declared their intention to go on strike even the day before the Soviet was uh, was set up. So I, uh, the thought suddenly struck me that it would be good to do it there. So I started writing kind of in that direction. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things I did was got um, uh, Terry O'Donovan on board to direct it as director, and he was involved in helping me to develop the script. T- Terry the, works yeah. a lot of sites specifically. He does, yeah. I mean, he's he's originally from America. I know him for a long, long time, uh, but he's been in London for, for ages with a company called Dante or Die, and they specialize in site-specific theatre. They do plays in all sorts of weird and wonderful places. And most recent one they did was in a was in um, a sports a, a sports hall and stuff. Uh, they did a f- terrific play here as part of um, uh, Limerick City of Culture in 2014. They did a play called I Do in the Savoy and it was really really good. 
Um, so I really wanted him on board from the get-go. I wouldn't have been able to do it without him because he's really good in the logistics of this. Mm-hmm. How do you how do you kind of shape a play to, to work like that? Because what happens when the audience come into the uh, in, in, into us after we introduce ourselves to them? But the they, they, they first uh, scene that they encounter, everybody sees it together. About 120 people who are in our audience. But after that, they're divided into three groups and they move around the spaces. And so each group will in uh, will. Everybody will see everything, but each group will see scenes in a different order, which will be interesting to see how they are. I'd imagine they get a different perspective as well. Slightly different perspective because the order in which you... No, all the scenes are... I mean, some of them relate to each other, Mm -hmm. uh, others not so much. Um, But this was because we... we, we, uh, In looking at the Limerick Soviet from the beginning, we were uh, struck by the fact that there would, would... Any story like that from history that's contentious... They're going to be different points of view. People have different views on it. Uh, people come at it from different angles. So we thought it would be interesting if we could almost or kind of try to replicate that and have people come at this story from different angles. So, so it'll be interesting to see people getting back together later on and talking maybe with their friends who are in a different group and seeing how was your, ex- was your experience different because you saw things in a different order. That would be kind of... I'm curious to see how that works out. Writing a play like this must be difficult because you want to be historically accurate while creating fictional characters. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a challenge, but I, I, there's a quote I came across recently which uh, I find helpful. Uh, somebody said that historians tell us what happened and artists tell us how it felt. Mm-hmm. So I suddenly realised that that clarified for me really what my job is. My job is to try and find out how it felt to be there at that time and to try and show people how it felt. Humanise it. Humanise it. Yeah. I'm not a historian. I mean, I like history, but I'm not a historian. And so uh, the great thing is that there are uh, there are books about the Limerick Soviet and, and, and more coming out, as another one was um, was published last week. You were clutching one at the, the launch. I was, yes. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, that was Neil Cahill's book, um, um, Forgotten Revolution, which is really terrific. I'm looking forward to He's got a new version of it coming out at the very, very end of the month. Um, that's a terrific, terrific uh, source. So I'd like to think that people may come to the play and go, oh, this is really interesting, and they'll learn some of the history from it, but more importantly, I think they'll go to the history books to get the history. Um, uh, I think that the play is, I'd like to think that it's pretty accurate historically I mean I've done my research I certainly wouldn't be making any major uh, I don't think there are any major gaps in it obviously you know, we have to play around with dates ever so slightly and, the and, car- and it's a small time as well a, a small time frame compared yeah. with the whole thing and also the thing is that you know it's a, it's a, it's a big story mm-hmm. that would involve having to have hundreds of people if you wanted to really recreate it so we're not in the business of recreating anything it, that would involve you know having hundreds of people then barricades all that kind of stuff we never had those resources nor, nor did we want to do that so what we've done is we've picked a couple of small almost D- domestic situations that illustrate the bigger story you know and uh, sorry yeah so so, uh, so so for instance uh, one of the scenes is set in a bakery where uh, a baker and his wife are discussing the soviet and the the wife is very enthusiastic about it the baker not so much so between their argument or as they're having their argument or their their debate the bigger story is kind of illustrated and for listeners who might know what was the limerick soviet uh, how did it come about it came about in, uh, so we're obviously talking about April 1919, 100 years ago this month, and um, what happened was the British Army uh, declared martial law and uh, uh, under the Defence of the Realm Act, and so they imposed martial law on the city, which meant that they were restricting the movements of people going around. This was in response to uh, an incident that happened in St. Camillus's, where the IRA tried to spring uh, a prisoner who was in hospital there. His name was Bobby Byrne. And his funeral became a huge kind of, like a, like a rally. There were um, thousands of people at the funeral, and like so many Republican funerals, it became almost a political statement. And this kind of rattled the British. And so as a response to that, and to d- during the escape uh, attempt, Bobby Byrne was shot in the escape attempt, as was, uh, I think there were two policemen shot dead. 
And as a, as a response to that, the British declared martial law, put barricades on the bridges, the, uh, and barricades in other parts of the city. And so if you wanted to come into the city, you had to go to the British Army and get a permit from them. So the local workers uh, through the Trades Council decided that that was an infringement on their right to earn their daily bread. They said, this is just not on. So they declared a general strike, and, uh, and it lasted for about two weeks. And, and they took over the running of the city, the workers did, and they uh, had to organized food distribution, uh, they printed their own newspaper, um, and quite extraordinarily, they printed their own money and issued their own currency. Um, so it's, it is a very unique part of Limerick history or, or, or Irish history, and, and it's, it's, known, it's quite well known outside the country, especially on the left or among labor historians, because mm -hmm. it was an example of workers taking over a city, which is a fairly, fairly rare occurrence for, for people to run a city so systematically. And uh, would you think if it was to go to a stage Instead of an on-site production, it might go abroad somewhere. Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a story well worth the telling. And if we had gone a different way and done a more mm -hmm. conventional play, uh, I guess in the lime tree, if it was more, uh, it would be more portable that way. Um, and I think it would certainly uh, find an international audience because the themes are international. In fact, around this time, there were other Soviets, and I mean, there was a lot of industrial unrest yeah. um, around this time. I think in the in the wake of the First World War. Uh, you know, so many men came back from the First World War, you know, four years of absolute slaughter and everybody was scratching their heads going, well, what, what was that about? Uh, lots of discontent among working class people, who the people who'd done most of the fighting. And they really realized after four years that it was utterly in vain. And a lot of the time they came back to find absolute poverty, you know, and they came back to find they had no jobs. And this uh, was just after 1916. After 1916 as well, of course, 1916 Rising would have uh, radicalized um, uh, Republicans in, in, in this country. As we know, there's a huge rise in Republicanism and membership of the volunteers after the the leaders of the 1916 Rising were executed. Of course, go back a little further, the, 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 uh, the lockout in 1913 in Dublin would have kind of radicalized uh, working class people as well. So there was a huge uh, surge in trade union membership and a huge surge in on, on the left right across Europe and like uh, uh, in the wake of the first world war like there were there were other soviets and major strikes in hamburg and different parts of germany there's a huge strike in glasgow just after the war as well so so it was a really really interesting mm -hmm. time and so so limerick was a big kind of part of that but it it wasn't happening what was happening in limerick wasn't happening in isolation so so you mentioned you've been writing this for the last number of years for four years was it well on and off i think yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, how does it feel to finally see it being rehearsed and and in cleaves obviously it's terrific i mean it's great for me i'm not kind of swanning around people are yeah. doing, doing extraordinary work mm -hmm. uh, down there because of the what we 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 spoke about at the start uh, of this conversation the challenges of moving in there so everybody's had to up their game everybody's brought their a game and there's incredible work being done i'm lucky now most of my work is done i'm, I'm the only person who's all who's who's pretty much finished now i mean we did some tweaks as we went along but i'd imagine all of that is done now tweaks to the script that is so now i'm kind of just popping in and popping out like uh, i don't know like some kind of absentee landlord swanning around go oh, you're all doing very well <laughs> keep keep up the good work but they're doing extraordinary work and it's, it's really exciting i can't wait for it to get an audience you know and any play when you get to this stage you're only a couple of days away from opening and was it hard putting your trust in, in terry to put it on the stage not really because i just I, I i learned a long time ago that one of the most important things in this game if you're doing anything is to just get the right people around you. If you've yeah. got a good team of people around you, then just everything else pretty much falls in, mm -hmm. into place. It's not simple. There will be challenges, but it, you have you need good people to overcome these challenges. So in every department, we've just got the best of people. We've got the 
we've got the best cast, the amazing crew, great designers, and, and but having Terry at the heart of it, you know, I, I, I trust everybody there, so it is really easy for me. I'm, re, I'm really kind of hands off at this stage. I don't mind. I, I, all of the cast, I trust them if they, you know, they, they don't change things without consulting me. But frequently they come to say, look, this, this line is it really essential? It's not working for me. In most cases, I'm going. Yeah, grand. Make it make it more natural. The better. Make it your own more natural, and also, you know, I'm not I'm not stupid. Whatever makes it's my it's my name on it. That if something else makes it better, if somebody's got a better idea, mm-hmm. then obviously I'll take it because it reflects well on me. You know, <laughs> I'm not uh, I'm not I'm not so I'm not that. Uh, I'm, I was never ever really possessive about about scripts. I learned something very early on from another Terry from Terry Devlin from my theatre company. He said an interesting thing about uh, about about plays. He said that their a play script uh, is it's a blueprint for a production. Uh, it's not literature. I mean, people don't mm-hmm. read plays. You don't t- I mean, some people do, but you, it's not a play is not something that you take home and, uh, from the library and, and read it yourself. You can do that. It's just not as enjoyable as watching it uh, being performed. And so, what I write is is really only the starting point for something else. It's not a finished thing on its own. It's, yeah. it's, it's just a, it's just words on a page. Really, it's 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 all, almost valueless until such time as everybody else comes and breeds like actors breed life into it, uh, designers interpret it. And people just make it something different. So it's almost the script's almost only fifty percent, if even that, and very much so in this case because there's so many other elements mm-hmm. working upon it. But, well, as a site specific play, it's probably more of an experience than going to view it. It is for sure. I mean, it's, yeah. it's definitely. I mean, it's, it's. We also have an amazing uh, cast. A volunteer community cast of about 15 actors who've been working with another terrific director called Kira de Tobin, whom I know for years. Um, and they've been devising other little scenes that happen uh, in between the main scenes because uh, the danger with something like this, when people have to move, the audience have to move from like space A to space B, going from you know scene one to scene two, uh, there's a danger that they will, in that transition, that they will be bounced out of the world of the play, mm-hmm. that they'll be talking to each other or they'll be, you know, checking their text messages or making sure the babysitter doesn't have a problem back home or whatever, or just looking around them. Or, so what the community cast are doing with these wonderful sort of vignettes and, and little little pieces that they're doing in between time, even if it's just cycling by on an old-fashioned bicycle in costume, it's reminding people that you're in this particular world. It's not real life. It's a fantasy kind of world. So it's a bit, it's a kind of a, it's, so it's, part, it's part to play, part uh, theme theme park, you know. <laughs> and um, obviously you had a lot of support from uh, Bell Table Connect. Mm. What did that mean to you while you were writing? Well, it was amazing because all of this goes back probably about four years when I had a conversation with Louise, uh, Louise Donlan in Lime Tree Bell Table, uh, who suggested that together we should go and apply to the Arts Council for some support to be, uh, for me to be theatre artist in residence. Um, so it just wouldn't be possible to do this play because it involved a lot of research. It, it gave me a kind of year out and an office in the bell table mm-hmm. um, to, to, to work on this. Um, and their support has been immense. They were in right at the start. And then next in were, were City Council who gave us gave us some money. And then the promise of Cleves, once the script was written, um, the promise of, of being able to put on Cleves was terrific. And then with all of that, we went to the Arts Council and, and then thankfully um, got got fairly decent funding to, to, to put it on. So... Well, the funding was much needed because it, it is an old building, like you said. I'd, I'd imagine there was a lot of work to do Absolutely. when you and first got in. And also, you know, it's got a, a cast of 10 people. I mean, that in itself is huge. And mm-hmm. the crew crew is massive, you know, uh, because of all the work that has to be done. You know, it's not just, uh, like I said, it's not just prepping one space, it's prepping four. So I went down there and I worked that, that. When Paul Mead, who, who's uh, one of the producers from Guna Nua Theatre Company, he came down, he's normally in Dublin. He came down last week, I think. 
to have a look around. He said that it actually felt more like being on a film set than being in a theatre because like there's people going by <laughs> with ladders and it was literally like being on a film set where they'd often be prepping different scenes in different in different places in the one location and it would be at different stages. So it is, it is a massive operation and so every penny that we got uh, has been spent and, and, and some more. And um, it's it's sold out. Yeah, it's completely yeah. sold out. Uh, it's sold out before it even opened, uh, which is just kind of remarkable and mm-hmm. almost unheard of, you know. Um, so do you think to, it might come back during the year, or, or is this just it's an old, such an old building and there are developments planned no, for? It. I mean, there's probably nothing happening to it in the in the immediate sense, so yeah. that wouldn't be the bar to it. I mean, the biggest problem would probably, probably be well, the, the the cost of it because yeah. you know when you've got a, a cast of ten people mm-hmm. and a huge crew. Also, like it, it means that we've got to have like three three or four stage managers, three or four uh, lighting operators working on lighting desks and so on. So everything is, everything is quadrupled. So it, it's, it's, it's hugely expensive. So it's unlikely that it will ever come back. I mean, I would never say never. It can't tour because it's designed specifically for yeah. there. It would be great if it came back, but it would, it would take a scatter of money. And the other thing always is the availability of people. You know, I'm not sure that the cast will all be available. They'd like to do it, I'm sure. But, I'm, but you know, they're all freelance people. As soon as this is over, they'll be off looking for other work. Mm-hmm. And some of them may already have other work lined up. So, but n- never say never, but it, 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 uh, it would be it would be a long shot for sure. And earlier on, you mentioned uh, someone from Island Theatre. It's mm. a name that keeps popping up when I interview people in the arts or theatre in Limerick. Yep. Uh, it's no longer... No, it, it fell foul of a kind of an arts council policy uh, about, gosh, is it gone? it's gone 10 years now or, or even more. It lasted for roughly 20 years from um, 1988 to uh, 2008. But we've seen a, a number of new theatre groups pop up. Do sure, you, do yeah. Do you think I mean, it, the theatre scene in Limerick is getting stronger? It, it is, but, you know, um, it needs funding. It needs, uh, the, the, the problem with the, what the Arts Council did, they had this policy, they thought they had too many theatre companies. I would argue that they didn't have, uh, but they had this notion that, that having actual companies uh, wasn't good value for money, that they'd be better off scrapping those and going back to, um, uh, to a, a, a new way that they would kind of give money directly to individual artists. As in, as in an individual artist, you'd think I would be welcoming that, but in actual fact, it's a, it's a, it's a complete pain because you know in, I've had to, in recent times, make applications to the Arts Council mm-hmm. myself. I have no desire to do that. I'm not a producer. All I want to do is be a writer. Uh, and so if you have a theatre company with a producer and a director there and they're programming stuff all the time and hiring people, they would hire somebody like me and then I get to do just my job and nothing else. Whereas the Arts Council thought it would be really empowering to give people like me huge amounts of money for me to suddenly become a producer of my own work. Now, some people are good at that. Some people are good producers. I'm not. I, and also, I don't want to be doing it. I don't want to be, don't want to be employing other people. I don't want to have a bank account with you know 100 grand in it, none of, <laughs> none of which is mine anyway. <laughs> I don't want that responsibility. So I think it was a flawed... Uh, uh, policy uh, and ironically around the time that they were scrapping all these uh, small theatre companies like Ireland was which I, I think would represent value for money I think it did uh, over the years I mean like any organisation it, it has ups and downs it has yeah. times when it's really on its game and work is really good other times you know things are not so good you can't be uh, having hit after hit after hit that's just not possible um, but ironically, around the time that they that they got rid of all these companies that they had around the country, they started building all these theatres. So there's theatres all over the place. Little, small little towns have uh, little uh, mm-hmm. th- theatres that were built up because we have this obsession in this country with um, with bricks and mortar. Maybe we can kind of we understand them; they're tangible. Uh, the problem is, if you lot, build it, they will. If come. you build it, they'll come. But like, but they can only come if there's something in, on, <laughs> if there's something on in there. Yeah. And so a lot of the time, um, they built all these theatres, and then there isn't as much product. 
as there used to be the before. production probably more consistent with companies. It is, and, and also there's a possibility of planning and a possibility of, of learning your trade. Like, for instance, in, in, in Ireland Theatre Company, you know, our biggest hit was, 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 was Pigtown um, in 1999. But, like, we... That it took us ten years to be good enough to do that. Yeah, you know, we were all working together. I was working. Terry directed. It. I, I I wrote it. Um, but we when we started out ten years previously, we didn't have the confidence or the ability or the smarts or the knowledge to do that. It took ten years of us working together to get to that. And even if you look at what we're doing with this show, a lot of us have worked together before. I've worked before with Terry. I've worked before with with Paul Mead and Guna New Theatre Company. You do need to be working with the same people. A lot of the time, in yeah. order to to just well, you build up a relationship. Relationship is like it's like look at the difference between you know a Premiership uh, football team who are playing week in, week mm-hmm. in, week out, and how good they can be together compared with a, a national team who only meet every six months for a training camp, and then they go out on the pitch and they don't even know each other's names. <laughs> you know, uh, that's the kind of difference. Yeah. Maybe a silly analogy, but it's kind of like that. And I think that sometimes you do need consistency. You do need to have a group of people to be able to work together for a while. Uh, in order to hit your stride. And, and Pigtown's a classic example of that. that. It took us 10 years to be able to do that. You know, we were learning, for the, we were working up to that, doing other people's plays and doing other stuff and working with each other all the time. It took us, but it took us 10 years to get, to get that. And that was another play that focuses on history, kind of, or draws from history. Yes, yeah, yeah it was... Uh, it was Would a, that be one of your big inspirations? Yeah, historically absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I like history and sometimes I just use plays as an excuse to spend two years researching <laughs> history, you know. <laughs> Um, I spent two years reading history books and then six weeks writing the play because uh, I did another play recently for uh, for, for Fishamble Theatre Company in, in Dublin they had a scheme called um, a Play for Ireland and this was a shortlist of that but it's very different from the way I normally operate because it's not historically based it's all it's all entirely original and made up and it was written the first draft was done in about six weeks so maybe if I stopped reading the history books <laughs> if I stopped doing history plays I could re- I could write more of them because like, they, they happen quicker but I'm I'm kind of I do definitely go, yeah, I'm going to write a, I'm writing a play at the moment, but actually I'm spending two years reading history books. And is there a big sense of pride for the play that's currently running compared to that, or do they both have their own? Um, they're very different in some ways. I'm really excited about both of them. I mean, yeah. I mean the other one, uh, it's called Requiem, and I've no idea what's going to happen with it. There's, there's, there are no plans to put it on. Maybe I'll have to apply for money myself to put it on, or I'll, I'll, I'll shop it around after this one is finished. They are very different. Um, what I love about this is I, I love the the camaraderie of the cast and crew and stuff. I love rehearsals. I mean, I, I, I used to act to do a little bit, uh, but I, I, I started to fall out in love of love with acting, um, gosh, about 10, 15 years ago. And the biggest thing that worried me about that was not being in rehearsal. I love rehearsal rooms. Yeah. I love being with actors and artists together in a room, smart, compassionate people trying to solve a problem, which is usually the play. Um, and so I, I, to a certain extent, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care if a play never opened. I would rehearse a play forever. I would rehearse a play for a year, you know, and put it on for one night because rehearsals are just great. They are great. So the there's less pressure in a rehearsal. There's less pressure in a rehearsal. <laughs> actually, have to put it on. It'd be great. It'd be great. Yeah, we're not going to put it on. We just do this play because rehearsal is kind of play. You know, we yeah. are very lucky. Um, uh, it's hard work for sure, but it is using creative sides of you and things that children did naturally and yeah. children were... And you were, spoke of relationships earlier on. Yeah, for sure. Friendships. You build them friendships. Up. Exactly, and, yeah. For sure. And and so this one is particularly good because there's just so many people and they're just enthusiastic. But I think everybody knows that it's a, literally, it's a once in a centenary opportunity to do something big. I mean, we, people, people normally don't get to be in plays this big with this many people and they're just this challenging and exciting with the, also the potential for it to go terribly wrong, you know, because, you know, uh, the potential for disaster when you go 
when you when you push yourself outside your comfort zone in every field, um, it's not going to be disastrous. But but there's that little frisson of excitement going. Well, we might not pull this off, you know. That 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 does help. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, I would tell people where to go and buy tickets, but it's sold out. But they might be able to contact. The lime tree, and if nobody shows up, they could pop in. Maybe. I think there is a, I think there is a waitlist because yeah. often what happens is that uh, you know obviously sometimes people will buy will buy tickets and for whatever reason they can't get a babysitter or they, they can't come. So I wouldn't entirely give up, but it would it would be a long shot. But there is a there will be a, a waiting list for sure. And for the people who can't get to see it. What would you recommend them to look up if they want to learn more about the Limerick Soviet? Well, uh, and there are a, a number of books, as I mentioned, uh, Liam Cahill's book, um, which is called Forgotten Revolution. It's been out of print for the longest time, although uh, much of it, I think, is online because he's, he's, he's a very generous writer. I think uh, you can get it on his website, uh, you know, PDF version of it. But there's a new version of it coming out. He's done extra research, and so he's revised it. So that will be launched at the end of this year. And I've just started reading another book by Dominic Hawk called... Um, Limerick Soviet the this was released last God. week released just last week yeah, yeah. Um, I'm enjoying that I'm only about 20 pages into it but that's really good as well um, and there are other little pamphlets around and there's like Jim Kemi has written about it and if you go down to the library there's good articles by Jim Kemi in the old Limerick Journal and so on uh, there's a podcast Keen Keen Prendival is a podcast going on at the moment yeah. um, I did an interview with him for that I need to listen back I'm, I'm so bad <laughs> technologically I'm, I need to ask a young person to how do I get a podcast I know I sound like I'm ancient I'm not that old but uh, there's just so much going on. I haven't had a chance to listen to that, but I will. I know it's it's going to be really good. So there's lots of stuff around. Um, uh, you know this 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 centenary month. Yep. There's loads of things going on, debates, and uh, and there's a big exhibition coming on. Uh, I think down in in the museum. Um, it's all worth checking out. It's all worth checking out. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a, a, a big a big program of events uh, until the end of the year. So uh, it's a kind of exciting time, and I think it's nice that uh, this event in our city's history, which had almost been forgotten, literally the Forgotten Revolution, um, has finally, 100 years later, I think has come into the centre now, and I think a lot of people... Know There's a good driving it. force behind it. Driving force behind it, I think, yeah. and I think people are rightly proud of it. It's, it makes our city unique. You know, whatever your politics are, anything that makes the city kind of unique is, is a good thing in this day and age when we're all striving, you know, to get tourists to come here, to get, you know foreign investment the mayor's con is 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 is, uh, is um fond of saying that you know in interesting people come to interesting places i think yeah. we have to show how interesting mm -hmm. this this city is and we'll attract more people uh, at every level but it's just it's just there are important lessons there. Well, it's a city but it was a republic at one stage republic, one I, mean, I said <laughs> i said i, I got to talk, talk about this at the mayor's ball the other night and i fell upon a phrase that i'm rather proud of i, I was outlining the limic soviet and what it actually involved you know involving the workers taking over the city running it as a workers council having their own police force running um, transportation food distribution printing their own newspaper paper and critically um issuing their own currency issuing their own currency it's like um the people's republic of cork is a t-shirt the people's republic of limerick is a fact <laughs> so um i haven't met anybody from cork yet who's, uh, who's who responds to that but it's it, it's true you know other places talk about how oh we're really independent we're different mm -hmm. and we're unique and whatever and um, a lot of the time that's that is just kind of um it's just uh it's just a phrase that they'd like to put out there. Uh, maybe it's part of their own spirit. But, but, but we, for certain, can actually cite a time when the people of Limerick actually took over the running of the city in the face of a huge empire and yeah. gave them the two fingers, admittedly for a short period of time. But we said, look, this is us. We're going to run this. Thanks very much. I don't care how many tanks you have or how many guns you have. This is what we're doing. I find that inspirational and exciting. Brilliant. Uh, Mike, thanks very much for joining Not us. Not Pleasure. And uh, best of luck with the show or break Thank a leg. As they say. <laughs> thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks. 
You've been listening to We Are Limerick, a Limerick Post podcast. For more news, sport, entertainment and more podcasts, visit limerickpost.ie.